0: One of the lads I'm coaching at the moment, he's 22-year-old. He's just come from football, wants to run 400s. How do I run it? I don't know. I know how I used to run it, but I can't tell you how to. You've got to go out there and learn your trade. My name is
1: Tom McNabb. This is the
0: oral history of
1: British coaching. Our next interviewee, Peter Warden takes us back as far as my first Olympics, at least the first Olympics I attended, in 1964 in Tokyo. So welcome, Peter. Thank you, Tom. I'm very much disturbed to read that had you worn a thicker vest in the semi-final, which you lost by, I think, two thousandths of a second or something like that, uh, if you'd worn a thicker vest, you'd have made the final. (laughs) Have you ever given any thought, Peter? If I'd had a thicker vest, I might not have run as quick anyway. So that's a fair that's a good point, Peter. That's an <laughs> excellent point. You got me there, baby. You got me there. Now basic framework is to take you through us, take us through your life from school right through into your life in coaching. Get from you the lessons you've learned from that that long period in the sport, ones which we could possibly apply to our future. So I want to start with your school experience, Peter.
0: Uh, At primary school, we weren't actually taught athletics, but any of us who could run quicker than anyone else were entered for the local primary school competitions. That went into a regional competition. I discovered I was quicker than most and thoroughly enjoyed it. Then in secondary school, they did the strange thing with a little guy that taught me to hurdle. Few of us were successful. We did a reasonable amount of athletics with the limited facilities that we had. The school athletics championships, if you like, were actually run on the local cricket field.
1: Yeah, that, that, that wasn't uncommon, Peter, in that time. But how extensive was your experience uh, of the range of athletic events during that curricular time?
0: We did some of the basic yeah. throwing techniques, again, with the limited amount of facilities yeah. that we got. The teacher who... Really was a gymnast, much keener on gymnastics than in athletics.
1: Uh, When did you get into club athletics and and move into that area?
0: At about
1: 12-year-old. As early as that? Yeah. That's quite unusual for the time. my club, you know, Sheridan Harris up in Scotland, we had nobody inside the age of 15 in the club at all.
0: My cousin, who lived just down the road from us, was quite a good long jumper, and she... Mm was a member of the club in in Bradford, and we lived about eight miles away. And she would go and do some training there. And of course, because I'd already done some at school, I wanted to go, just like that. There was a bus stop just across the road from our front door, which dropped me off fairly close to the athletics track. And from somewhere around about... Fourteen, maybe fifteen-year-old. I was doing that on a regular basis. And what sort of coaching was available? Not a great deal. There was only one coach there who seemed to tackle most uh, most things. Don't know whether you've ever come across him. I would imagine he's passed by now. Man called Ken Oakley. Oh, Ken Oakley, yes. Well, he was the one that uh, actually introduced me to four hundred hurdles when he suggested I try quarter hurdles. Yeah, I'd never heard of it. Why would you? <laughs> It put some hurdles out at the right spacings, had a couple of runs over them, entered the, the Yorkshire Championships as an 18-year-old. It wasn't in the under-20s, at the county championships, only in the senior. So I had to run in the senior championships and won it. After that, I was hooked.
1: That was a pretty odd entry to the sport, wasn't it? Relative to nowadays, when it's a much clearer, more linear approach to the whole thing.
0: As I say, I won the senior championships and so I discovered, about 10 years later, I'd actually set a British under-20 record. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: there was no part of 10 then. No, thank goodness. No, there was no, I mean no means of knowing that then. What sort of time did you run over the senior hurdles at 18?
0: 56.6 uh, was the first one I did.
1: That's pretty good going.
0: 1959.
1: Yeah. Where did you go from there to 64 in Tokyo?
0: I went to Loughborough oh. to train as a PE teacher. I met a very, very good 400 hurdler. John Cooper.
1: Yes, I remember him.
0: Wonder still silver in Tokyo. And uh, the lead man in the uh, Loughborough team was Robbie Brightwell. And I learned a lot from those two guys. Not so much what to do, but how to do it. How to go and uh, go about putting in a really good, worthwhile training session. Not just simply to do any distance times X, but actually get out there and get something out of it.
1: Yeah, you were very fortunate to be those two. I knew both of them. And Cooper was again one of these guys who wasn't a natural I a mean, natural athlete, was he? John was originally a triple jumper. he's as tough as old boots,
0: yeah, and a sense of humor about the same.
1: <laughs> yes, Well, that, that's very interesting. I didn't realize that was where you'd got your you know a, a lot of your thoughts and your ideas from yeah, was that what took you forward to Tokyo?
0: Yes. It was 1960 when I went to Loughborough. I was a reasonably good athlete, a good club athlete. I could win a county championship, and that was about my level. And I never suspected four years later I'd be competing in the Olympics. So what was the breakthrough? Learning how to train, how to put it together. Yeah. The one thing I think I learned more than anything else was rest, not to just simply keep on battering away. And it's something I'm still trying to get through to athletes. Rest is a four-letter word, and they don't like it.
1: I think that's important. I'm always interested in how little you can do to get the result you need. Yep. To be economic with your time, to make sure every single thing you do has got a purpose.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, I was um, eventually teaching PE in Bradford, not far from where I lived, also not very far from the track. So I could finish a day's yeah. teaching, come home, have something to eat, then go straight to the track and train.
1: And were you being coached at all there or just simply uh, working out for yourself?
0: working it out for
1: myself. Yeah, that's what I did too. But You did a bit better <laughs> than me. You did a good deal better than me. You went to the 64 Olympics. I was there too. I went as an observer with all the other national coaches. Of course, in those days, you know TV, so you couldn't go and see it in your hotel afterwards. I think that would have scared me. See. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember Tokyo very, very well. Uh, Ron Pickering and I, who became the BBC commentator, we shared a room and there were no beds in Tokyo. He slept <laughs> on the floor. Which I, I'm sure you didn't do in the nope. Olympic Village.
0: The second day in the Olympic Village, we got a little bit of a shock. There was a minor earthquake.
1: Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> now, you then went on to, to win the medals in the 440-yard hurdles and the 440 40 yards uh, really at Kingston in what was called the Empire Games in those days. Yes. Could you take us through that?
0: Quite an experience was that one, because there was, about that sort of time, a biannual USA-USSR match. One year it would be in the States, the other year it would be in Russia. And in 1966, the Russians pulled out. I think it was over the Cuba crisis. The Russians pulled out, and then a Commonwealth team was entered. I was part of the Commonwealth team, but running the flat 400, not the hurdles. It wasn't the 400 hurdles in it. So I went to California, ran in the... Um, this match in the 400, and then Jamaica. And arrived there in Jamaica about a week before the competition started.
1: Pretty good vehicle for um, preparing for that uh, Commonwealth Games. Now, at that particular point, correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but the first person to do alternate legs at the huddles was a guy called Potgaiter back in 1958 at the Commonwealth Games. What pattern were you
0: using at that time? Was it 15s and 17s? Occasionally... On a good track with a backwind, I would do 14s down the back straight. You did alternates? Yeah. That I didn't know. I taught myself to hurdle with the wrong leg. It meant there was a lead leg available if I needed it. <laughs> but
1: didn't you make your mind up before you went into the race? Look, I'm going for alternates today up to the
0: fifth. Yeah, usually. <laughs> oh, God. Sometimes the old cinder tracks weren't quite as predictable as the modern ones.
1: Uh, that's certainly true. You know? You're the first person who's ever said that to me. I do remember in 74 at the Commonwealth Games over in New Zealand, our top huddle, Alan Pascoe at the time, there was a gale blowing down the back street. I'm talking a real gale. And he went out a half an hour beforehand to see if how long he could stay at 13 and did it. You know, he went around, I think, for about six hurdles, used that as his warm-up, I think, for the race. And then that was employed in the race i would never seen anyone ever do that. No, not have I. No, never see it again. David Hemery couldn't hurdle with his other leg. He could only hurdle with one leg leading. Yeah, but he had come from high hurdling.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah.
1: You know, he'd come from sprint hurdling, hadn't he? But you had gone straight, as far as I
0: can see, almost straight to 400-meter hurdling. I did do some sprint hurdles uh, at school. I enjoyed doing it, but unfortunately, the hurdles grew and I didn't.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise what height you were. High hurdles at three foot six would have been a personal best high jump for you. Uh, Just about, yeah. So basically you're telling me that all this way through to 64 and and beyond 66, you were basically self-taught with influences from Cooper and Brightwell and people like that, but you were self-taught.
0: Also some influence when I left university uh, from Dennis Watts.
1: Dennis was, uh, to explain to listeners, was one of the nine national coaches of whom I was one. Oh, I didn't know Dennis had worked with you.
0: Yeah, mostly by letter. Oh, well... <laughs> Dennis was working in the Liverpool area. Uh-huh. By 66, certainly, I was in Hull.
1: Yeah, and so when did you retire and move into coaching? I was actually coaching while I was competing. Yeah, I did the same.
0: I didn't look on it as being coaching. I thought of it more as helping the other athletes in, in the club. And also helping myself because I had somebody to train with. The lads that trained with me uh, were mostly 800-meter runners. Yeah. And one, occasionally, came across from Leeds University, a young man called David Cropper. Oh, yeah. Very occasionally, visit for Major Metcalfe. Yeah, Metcalf.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I worked with Adrian. I knew Adrian very well. Brilliant 400-meter runner. Never did much training. He wasn't keen on training, Adrian.
0: No, he wasn't. <laughs> no. No. <laughs>
1: When did you make the jump into retirement from competitive athletics into coaching?
0: I retired from, from competitive athletics when I was 29. 1969, I got injured. I had to have a, an operation on my right knee. It was my own silly fault. I shouldn't have played rugby at my size. torn cartilage. And that pretty much finished it. I did actually do a year doing the professional circuit in, in the Scots Borders. Oh, you did? I competed in those as well. Great fun.
1: It's like going back 100 years. Yes. On your marks and be set. Long jumping was ground to ground. No board. So was pole vault. Long jump, triple jump, high jump,
0: ground to ground. Last competitive race I did was New Year's Day, 1970. It was a powder hole. Oh, you competed in a powder
1: hole. So what sort of mark did they give you? Seven metres. About that, yeah.
0: Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy. The Scots guy, though, won that one and also won the um, big one in Australia. First man to do it.
1: Oh, no, come back to me. I've got all the handbooks of the Scottish Games Association upstairs. I wish I'd known you were in this. I would have brought them down with me. George McNeil. Correct. I knew George. And he was quick. Yeah. He was very quick. I gave him about three metres start. He'd murder you over that distance. I didn't know you'd done that. Now, you're
0: you're now at coaching and you're coaching at what club now? At that time, I was in Hull, teaching at Hull University and coaching usually uh, with university students on the Hull University track. What
1: coach education did you get at that time?
0: None. None at all. None at all? Other than what I learned at Loughborough, I'd had nothing. Doing coaching sessions with Dennis, with Dennis Watts, and after I'd done a couple or three of those, he said, well, you ran, you were an international hurdler and an international 400-meter runner. You've done practical sessions for me, so it yeah. passed me straight through to senior level with me coaching qualifications. So I never actually went on a coach education course.
1: There was a pathway in those days for international athletes to go straight through to senior, which I'm not, I'm not sure was a good idea because you really do want some sort of training.
0: It did work with me, but only because I'd got the background from Loughborough. Tell me what, what was happening, who you were coaching, and, and what you were learning during that period. At Hull University, mostly sprinters, three of them won, won British universities titles. Occasionally got visits during the summer from David Jenkins. His father was manager of big chemical works in, in Scunthorpe across the uh, Humber. So he would come down and I would work with him during the summer breaks. So when did you move on to national coaching? 1981.
1: That was for the
0: Northwest, wasn't it?
1: Uh, who was leading the coaching system at that time with the national coaches?
0: coach education system was being run by Carl Johnson. The head boss was Frank Dick. I don't think Frank ever forgave me for keeping him out of the team as a folded hurdler.
1: I'll have a word with him, actually, and see if we can get some sort of forgiveness for you. <laughs> Frank's own background was quite modest in the sense that when he was being um, considered as national coach by the British board, I think, around about right 1972, Wolf Pace was sent off to test him. But he came back and said, Look, he's never coached. And he was dispatched back to test him again. And he said, Well, it's not going to change much in two weeks. <laughs> uh, how did you get on with Frank?
0: I always got on pretty well with him. You were never quite sure, though, with Frank. There was always something behind what he was saying.
1: No, that was a period, 1968, the most Mexico Games was the beginning, really, of drugs, really, in terms of our knowledge that drugs are being used. How aware were you of that, uh, Peter? And how did that color what you were doing?
0: I w- was aware of it. It didn't make any difference to what I was doing. I was still coaching the athletes. I refused point blank to have anything to do with the drugs. My failing all the time. Yeah has been, if you need drugs to do it, it's not worth doing.
1: I took the same view. What did you learn from that period of uh, national coaching? That went to 97, didn't it?
0: As regional coaches, we were pretty much left to do it our way. We managed to organise monthly coaching clinics and sent out invitations to coaches to come with their athletes. We referred to the group as Athletics Coaching Northwest. I had a database, computer database, of all the qualified coaches in the Northwest, and we sent out twice a year coaching newsletters, tell them what was going on, put little bits of articles in, invite coaches, etc. This was additional to the accepted coach education that was part of the system.
1: So, in effect, you were enriching what was already been given.
0: And enjoying doing it.
1: Oh, well, that is the key to the whole thing. No. When you left in 97, what do you think first we can learn positively from your experience that might have some relevance to what we're doing now?
0: The key factors, I think, it seemed very quickly to become much more bureaucratic. And the development of athletes, to my mind and to what I've seen over the years, it's like a tree it grows from the bottom up, doesn't grow from the top down. That the central thing. Everything seems to be concentrated on the ones who are already there. With my old event, the 400 hurdles, the senior boys, 400 hurdles at the English schools. The championship record was set in 1982, and it's 51.5. The winner of the last English schools, senior boys, 400 hurdles, ran 59-6. The record holder is Max Robertson, and I coached him. Now, how do you think we can, in the medium to long term, turn that round? My immediate reaction, which I, I'm have having to try sitting on because it might sound stupid, ban football. <laughs> oh, come <on. laughs>
1: ban football. Are you talking to a Scot here? i played football for 20 years. <laughs> no, I'm not having it mate. One can certainly see the impact of women's football on the number of women who might now go into athletics.
0: Again, I'm, I'm happy to speak from only what I've seen around here. Quite often, there seems to be a reluctance to compete. Oh, I'm happy to train. I want to come and train and keep fit, but I don't want to compete. can't understand that attitude at all.
1: No, they're not athletes then, because the word athletics comes from the Greek atlas, meaning competition for prize. So if you don't want to compete, then you're not an athlete. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. Doesn't matter if you're a member of an athletic club. You're not an athlete. Mm. Looking back, the number of indoor facilities for training was virtually zero, wasn't it? That's right. And if you look at it now, our facilities now are a hundred times better. You know, because I'm looking at, uh, I say, places like Lee Valley, Brunel, Cardiff, Bath. I, the number, uh, uh, the, the sheer volume of indoor facilities we have now. Uh, there's no relationship to what was faced in the past or any of the athletes of your generation.
0: Around this area, there were certainly two, maybe three, specially designed indoor facilities, not exactly tracks, somewhere where particularly technical events could be done. Long jump, triple jump, difficult with high jump. They were usually tacked onto the side of a sports hall or something on those lines. One of them in particular, athletics can't use it because it's been taken over by gymnastics.
1: Well, I think we've covered it fairly extensively. I've learned a hell of a lot. I don't know about anyone else. What makes a great coach, Peter?
0: First of all, the, the knowledge of what to do with yeah, the athlete. Yeah. Sympathy and the empathy to be able to get the athlete to do it. I said to um, Dennis Watts when I uh, when I finished my athletics career, I couldn't have done it without you. He said, nonsense, I couldn't have done it without you. That is the sort of thing that you've looked at. It, it's athlete-centred. One of the lads I'm coaching at the moment, is 22-year-old, he's just come from football, wants to run 400s. How do I run it? I don't know. I know how I used to run it. can't tell you how to. You've got to go out there and learn your trade. And so far, on the only is fourth ever 400 down to
1: 49.3. Well, that's excellent. You can end on a high note. I'm that not bloody good. <laughs> So thank you very much indeed, Peter. And the other people we're looking at, we already had Carol Jackson, mainly people coming from a fair distance in terms of time so that we can get a reasonable span of knowledge and experience. You're talking to the old folk first. But I I, I didn't use that term. (laughs) I did not use that term. I mean, because they can draw from a whole set of experiences, differently organised, differently funded, from a different world really and some of these may be yeah. value to what we're doing at present well thanks very much indeed Peter
0: nice to talk to you
1: again thank you very much